Hello and welcome to Abernethy Archives. This is the podcast of the Museum of Abernethy, where we talk to people and to each other about old stuff relating to the Museum of Abernethy. We also talk a bit about the problems faced by we museums and how we are trying to address them. Things like funding, volunteers, outreach and accessing resources museums like us need. I'm Irene Halliburton, Museum Trustee of the Museum of Abernethy. Um, I'm a current PhD student in Scottish history, also worked a bit in museums and once upon a time worked in science. Uh, I have with me today our young volunteer Anna. Say hi Anna. Hello. So we have big Anna and this is wee Anna, except she's bigger than me, but you know, that's okay. Um, Anna is our Duke of Edinburgh Awards volunteer. Yes. Um, she's been with us since June. Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. She's been with, Anna's been with us since June um, and she's been just helping us about the museum on a Saturday morning, discovering that um, probably 80% of what goes on behind the scenes in the museum is cleaning, um, but she still comes back. Do you want to tell us a little bit, Anna, about what you've been doing? Well, I do various work, like during the summer I did a lot of work outside, cleaning up the outdoor exhibit and waxing and cleaning various artefacts. I mean, that was really fun as I got to learn all about like really random things, but <laughs> they were all quite interesting, like the weird murder weapon bear trap thing that I had to clean and I was slightly worried about yeah. taking my fingers off the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and I do a decent amount of cleaning and I have done... What else have I done? Um, we've been doing... We've been doing some archive work, so we have been given lots and lots of old documents. People still in Abernethy seem to find piles of old documents in their attics. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been doing some cataloguing of those old documents and um, we've been finding stories. Um, can you remember any of the stories that we found, Anna? I do remember, I can't quite remember his name, but I remember there was this doctor who, when we first found out about him, we found out he hadn't been paying his like workers very well but then we found out he was dead and we kind of felt bad for him because you know little tiny rural doctor doesn't have much money he's struggling to pay his fees and then we found out he was like the equivalent of a billionaire back then like we found his house belongings and stuff and it was like 300 different types of wine and f f seven rooms for one person and it was we didn't feel very bad for him anymore frankly no but he did eventually pay his staff didn't he he did yeah, it took her quite a while of sort of back and forward to this, uh, well, what do you call them, executors um, to actually get some money, but there was a bit of argument, but she did, she did get paid eventually. <laughs> at last. At last, yeah, yeah, no, that was quite, that was quite a good one. What was the one we had last? There was another one we had the other week. It was the different handing over of properties yes. to, throughout families, like we found when the f like the great great grandfather was handed over the house from another family and then the progress of the house and estate going down the family line exactly yeah see history is exciting it's quite exciting it's exciting so you do you do history at school i do do history at school and is it as exciting as the history <laughs> stuff that you do here not at all uh, it's <laughs> just they feel it feels a lot more like we're being taught to pass exams rather than being taught actual history and most of the history we learn is within like the last 100 years mm. like we did we we did migration and empire which sounds really interesting 
until you actually get to it and it's just like scots were well educated so they traveled to these countries commonly so one of the big things in museum world at the moment is decolonization mm. and is that something that is covered in school so you would think with um you know the movement of scots across the empire that that might be something that would would come up it was a while ago that i did do this subject but i'm not really sure if it did come up too much it was mainly like sometimes we talk about negative effects of scots mm -hmm. moving abroad and we did talk a little bit about like famous scots but sometimes they didn't really do the best things when in mm -hmm. their time in like other countries but they don't really tend to cover that part, though I do think they do better now because I'm doing the Atlantic slave trade right now and mm -hmm. we do tend to cover a lot more of we did have a huge part in this and we need to, you know, own up to that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it's more of a modern studies subject is the the repatriation and the decolony of, ob yeah, yeah, of objects, objects and um, owning the past. Yeah. The decolonization thing is a bit funny well, not funny, haha, -ha, but it's a bit odd because there are different levels of decolonization. Mm -hmm. So at that kind of that that kind of basic level, it is about museums trying to return, you know, offering to return things that they have um, they have taken, they've taken stolen, even you know, some things are bought, some things are stolen, but things that they have that maybe they shouldn't. And then there's also there's a, there's kind of the next level where museums are actually engaging with indigenous populations in their reinterpretation. I know that there are some objects that are going to be in the New Perth Museum that uh, came from New Zealand, um, but the indigenous people in New Zealand have actually had real input into how things wow. are going to be displayed. And I think that's almost, in a way, I wouldn't say better than giving it back, but it's. It's still providing an education, but it's just yeah. a more accurate one because yeah. it's coming from the people who created it or mm -hmm. developed it. It's the correct interpretation yes. rather than... The white man. Rather than the white man's opinion. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I feel like in these museums, it's good to have artefacts from other countries and stuff. and But it isn't good to sort of... If, when it's stolen stuff or stuff that we got when we had like the empire running and stuff... That's it's like proudly saying, yeah, we owned you and we are taking your stuff. But if you like spoke with historians in these countries and mm -hmm. they could help build better exhibits yeah. to give better ideas of what their life is actually like, rather the interpretation of those who took it from them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we need to be able to put across all of these sides of the story. <laughs> now, obviously, one thing that's been in the news quite significantly since we last spoke is the, the theft or misappropriation, no, it's theft, yeah. of objects um, from the British Museum. And obviously this has moved quite quickly. Um, and the British Museum now are trying to reacquire some of their objects um, and have a website set up to try and... You know, I think the website has pictures of things that may have... Or, Pictures of things similar to those which have like crime watch for yeah, artifacts. It's a bit like crime watch for artifacts, yeah. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the objects that um, were misappropriated were things from archaeological contexts, so collections that maybe hadn't always been fully catalogued, so they were maybe easily easy, easy to, easy to swirl away. Yeah, but Anna made a good point Anna before. Anna made a good point earlier about reappropriating things or misappropriating or repatriating things. So what was it you were saying? It Anna? was 
I mean, it sort of links in with what we were saying earlier. A lot of these artifacts were taken from other countries. Mm -hmm. And when these countries were appealing to get these artifacts back, the British Museum used the excuse, they're safer with us. They're more likely to get stolen, misplaced or not displayed properly over in your country. But here we are and all the over 2000 artifacts were stolen from the British Museum. And these artifacts are from these other countries. And so obviously, are they really safe in the British Museum or would they just be better in their own country? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something to think about and this is one problem that all museums have is we're guardians you know we're guardians of what people have have given us or you know donated or put into our care and I think that kind of I think most people think that if something's in a museum it's safe and I think that's something that every museum whether it's a tiny museum like us or a huge museum like the British Museum have to really be aware of. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, was do you think this is going to have an impact on the British Museum's reputation or do you think some people will be reluctant to um, donate or loan things to them because they go, well, it's not as safe as we thought it was? Yeah, I think... I think the processes are different now. So it's unlikely, and I, I might be wrong here, that the museum, that the British Museum would be donated wholesale a collection of objects that have been found on an excavation site. Um, I think it would be done slightly differently. Um, if the British Museum borrow things, they will probably only borrow them these days uh, to go on immediate display. So they will... They'll, they'll have an exhibition theme and they will yeah. borrow from other museums or private collectors to put them on immediate display. So that's really transparent. And in the past, I don't know, in, in the past 20 years, I suspect that these processes have tightened up anyway. Um, accountability is a really big thing um, under the spectrum procedures, which are sort of the, the things that all museums try to kind of set as the standards that all museums work to. This brings us back to one of the things that we're going to be doing over the winter, which we need to do anyway, as we're going for accreditation, but we're actually going to try and do a complete collection audit. And that will involve starting at one end of the museum and just making sure that we have records for every single thing that we don't have that we have in the museum finding out you know who the original owner was if it's a loan who the owner is and that's going to be a huge project for us uh, over the winter little museum we are the guardians of a community and i think it almost maybe makes it even more important mm-hmm. um i know that we get people coming going my dad donated this we don't want it back but can we see it mm-hmm. because it's part of our family's history so we almost have more responsibility than the British Museum does and if you might actually be able to hear Miho running around yes. in the background Ambassador is back Ambassador is here but he doesn't get near any of the objects no 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 no. Care of them. no he just comes in and picks up the door wedge he does. He likes the doorway. I mean, Anna, how long is your Duke of Edinburgh participation running? Is, are you going to keep doing it after the Duke of Edinburgh finishes? Or I mean, I'm planning on continuing with my Duke of Edinburgh until, like, well, I'm hoping to keep doing going until gold because I love camping and I love this type of thing. So. I love camping. Yeah. Right. It's always I hate great camping. 
And I, so I plan on continuing, but my Jukarim was actually quite late this year. My expedition is in November, which is going to be great fun. Uh, but then I'll be starting my silver, which I need to do six months of volunteering for, and then eventually I'll be doing my gold, which requires 12 months of volunteering, so... And you're going to hopefully continue to do that in the museum? Yeah, I think of all the volunteering I could do, this is probably one of the most fun. Because I hear about my friend's stories, and it's like, oh yeah, I sit in my little charity shop for four hours every day, and it's like, I feel bad for them, because I have quite a fun volunteering job, and... I'm glad you think that. And we like to have you. But why did you... how did you think of us? to well, come and do your volunteering. I was really behind on my volunteering because I was panicking because what my volu my school's sort of Duke of Edinburgh has been a bit messy this year because our uh, leader went on maternity leave and her replacement sort of came along. She gave us a nice big speech about how she's going to get us all through it and then she never spoke to us again. So we're about eight months late. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we're continuing with everything now, but I was sort of panicking because I sort of forgot about my Duke of Edinburgh almost, so I managed to upload all my stuff I did for my skills, my physical, but then I was like, I don't have a volunteering and I need to get this done by this time, because according to the lady who gave us a speech, that's when we'd be doing our expeditions. It's not when we're doing our expeditions, but, uh, <laughs> and I was originally going to, I had a lot of ideas, but then none of them were really working out. Like mm. I'm an explorer scout mm -hmm. and I was going to go work on my old scout cub beaver group. But the thing is, I had stuff on when beavers and cubs were on, and then I didn't really want to go back to my old scout group because they were all kind of the younger kids than me. They're not very fun. I don't like them any, any of them very much. I have to go to school with them every day now. It's not good. They, yeah. They're all on like S2 now. It's not nice. It's just like, and then I was going to work in the Oxfam bookshop. I sent them an email. They never emailed me back. Oh, I nearly good. became a badge person hander out for RSPB. But mm -hmm. then I was in, then I realised how boring that would be walking around houses and asking if they wanted to buy pin badges. Yeah, like that would not be. And then I remember my mum was like, "Oh yeah, you know the Abernethy Museum is like wanting volunteers right now." And I was like, "Really?" I thought about it. I remember mum was like, "Yeah," and I don't think she really had any idea what it was going to be like. She's like, "Yeah, you need to learn to make tea, so you can make tea for all the nice old ladies who work." There. <laughs> Have and then you made was... anyone a cup of tea? I've made myself coffee, but yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and then, and then I started and I really enjoyed it. Like, I remember being quite nervous because I was like, is this going to be... Because last time I was at the Abernethy Museum was with my cub group when I was about nine. So I wasn't really sure exactly what it was going to be like. And when I came here, it was very different from what I imagined. And I really enjoyed it. So. Excellent. We're <laughs> glad we like to hear that. Well, we're, I think the museum's really trying to enter a new, a new phase. I think we've yeah. got younger trustees. Um, we're trying to make trying to make it a lot more relevant to younger people, and actually let younger people see that it's somewhere that it, it, it's good for them to come. I think when I first came here, before I started working here, because mm. when I started working here, it was like the first time I'd been here in a long time. I remember when I came in, I was like, "Oh, it's so different." Because I remember when I was younger, I liked it here, but it was. Like, it felt a bit outdated in places, yeah. but now it feels like... I remember when I came in and I was really impressed, because I thought Thanks. it was quite up-to-date. Excellent. <laughs> We're trying to change things all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's the story of a, a locale. Um, so, I don't know that the story... The base story doesn't change very much. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that the collection audit will do is help us find new stories. They're all just in there to be pulled out. Um, so, yeah. And Anna, if you have any ideas from anything that you see, a slightly different angle that we can take? I think we should put the sword on display. I really like the sword we have in our storage. 
Yeah, we find a sword. I had to take it off her. It's a good sword, though. But if if you see a sword, you've got to wield it. Well, I'll, it's... I'll let you see the sword because it's a really nice... It must have been... In, well, we know nothing about the sword. Again, collections audit, we will find out the story behind this sword. Yeah. And we have a rock that looks like an astronaut helmet and none of us know where it's from or why it's there. Yeah, but, you know, we can, we'll find that out. We'll dig about because a lot of our records are still paper. And we're hoping to change up, we're hoping to get all of the, everything onto a cloud-based system. And um, we've been looking at eHive, so we're really interested to know if anyone has any opinions on eHive. Um, and we'll try and get everything, good records of everything, and potentially even make it available so that people can see online, so we'll be photographing. But it is a good sword. It's a very nice sword. It, it fits nicely in a female hand. Just like a shield maiden. Yeah, yeah. We're thinking maybe we could be Vikings or yeah. I mean, I thought. I mean, I remember when we found it. You said it might have been a military sword, but then it's yes. also quite a fancy-looking sword, which seems strange. I always think of military swords looking a bit less. But then, if it's an officer's it sword, could have been a uniform, like a dress, dress sword. sword. Mm. Yeah, um, something that actually wouldn't have been used in anger. Just in a dress, yeah, just with your, your fancy uniform. It looks fairly modern because there's like a machine stamped number on it. Um, but we'll find out. And when we do find out, we will tell you. Yes. So we're going to be doing this big collections audit uh, over the winter. Uh, and that's going to be Anna's main, main job. I think it'll be a two or three man job when we do do it because we're going to have to refer to different databases and different notebooks and file card systems and things, um, but it's going to be really good. Um, so Anna's going to nip off now, um, going to ballet class this afternoon, I believe. Yep, for my double session. <laughs> Fabulous, you'll sleep tonight. Um, so yeah, thank you, and we'll probably talk to you again at some point later on. Okay? Okay. So I'm joined now by Big Anna. Fine. Um, <laughs> tr trust, trustee Anna. And Anna does our social media. Yay. Yay. Sorry, so... it's my fault. The bad puns, etc. <laughs> no, it's, 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 all, it's all Anna's fault if it's on, yes. on social media. And I think, what have you been sharing with us on social oh, media? Gosh, um, recently I've been tapping into the reasonably extensive archive of school photos, um, which seems to be going down well, particularly on Facebook. I think a lot of our followers are strangely enough, ex-primary school pupils of Abernethy. Um, and it's great, to, we've had a lot of interaction with it and some of the photos which are just like the one that I put up the other day um, in the archive is just listed as class of 52. Um, so it's great when people are able to come on and say, oh, that's so-and-so and that's, you know, who's, who's sat next to everybody and who the teacher was and what their memories are of the primary school. So it's turned out to be a really good resource. And we've had one just was uncovered last night, wasn't it? That was actually you and I at primary school. Yes, that needs to be buried <laughs> back in the depths of the archive and never ever spoken of again. I, I don't even know what year that was. I I've got short hair, so we must be fairly well up secondary up primary school. I'm fairly sure it was 1982. So be, I would be in primary seven yeah. by then. Yeah, it sticks in You'd my be head. Primary when the Scotland squad sang, we have a dream, and they were on top of the pops. Ah, okay. And yeah, because we've all got Scotland strips on. and Tying scarves. And, scarves. and we're holding a big um, line rampant flag. And, um, 
flashbacks. Indeed. Terrifying. Yeah. Everyone's mum and dad sat in the audience going, oh God, this is awful. But, yeah. <laughs> but clapping loyally. Absolutely. Us. I think we were great. Yeah. So the other thing that we were sharing quite a bit on social media was round our doors open day. Yes. And um, we had a very that. successful um, doors open day talk. So the museum, doors open day, you normally offer free entry into something that's paid, but because we actually are free to yes. everyone who wants to come in, um, we like to try and put on a little bit of extra value. Uh, and this year we had Dr. Andrew Tibbs from the University of Durham doing a talk about uh, Roman Persia, but primarily focusing on the legendary fortress at Kirpu. We did indeed. Yes. That was brilliant. It was very good. There was a really good turnout. In fact, we had so many people coming in that we were actually, it was a ticketed event, but um, we actually had people turning up on, on spec, on spec yeah. and had to turn quite a few people yeah. away. Um, but luckily, we had we had somewhere to direct them. Um, yes. Because this year we did a wee collaboration with the ladies in the Kirk session, um, and they very kindly opened the church. So if anyone wanted to go and have a look round, they could, and they had some volunteers to show people the high points. Um, and they also ran a kind of drop-in cafe, where for a small donation. I think the suggested amount was three pounds. People could get some homemade cake and a cup of tea or coffee, um, and that went fantastically well. Yeah, the church is right next door to us, yeah. So it's really nice to be able to kind of work with another organisation and support another organisation in the community. Well, that's it. it. Develops a wee bit of community spirit, and you know we're we're all in these straitened times, battling a mm. lack of funding. Um, I know the church is. You know, in common with a lot of churches across Scotland, they've got fallen numbers of members. It's harder to keep things going and keep things open. Um, I think particularly here, there's been some form of religious house for, what, 10 centuries? Yes. At least. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the current Kirk session are really keen to keep things going and keep it lively and keep people coming in. Um, so, yeah, it was a, an absolutely fantastic collaboration. I actually dropped in on my way back from the talk to the museum about quarter to four and the place was still jumping so um it was great and the Kirk session house jumping yeah That's a good it was jumping thing. it yeah. was fantastic yeah, and they'd made up um a wee booklet with a bit of chat about they've, they've got quite a nice it's not a tapestry as such it's like a what's the word i'm looking for it's like a big banner that they've sewn yeah. they've all sewn different panels yeah. so they'd made up a wee booklet that described that and what the process was um so yeah, on, on top of having Dr Tibbs with us and unveiling a revamped uh, Roman Abernethy exhibition, um, it was a fantastic day all round. I think everyone got something out of it, so definitely do something like that again next year, I think. Yeah, I think so. And, and we are hoping to get Dr Tibbs on. Yes, so... He has a very we, busy social calendar. Very, he's, he's about <laughs> to go to Canada to do a bit of a lecture tour in Canada. And we had hoped to record the talk on the day, yeah. but we're pretty new to these things and we didn't quite manage to get that set it's, up. I think we could classify that as a bit of a technology fail. It is, but we thought it was more important to make sure that the people in the hall at the time yeah. had the best experience without trying to do... Too what much. to do one thing well rather than do two things not so well. Yeah. So Dr. Tibbs has promised to record the talk for us and we'll make that available through the website, through our social media. 
um, and we'll let everyone know when that's ready. So we also, with the, the new Roman stuff, the new Roman or revised Roman exhibit, we've also got a loan from McManus Art Gallery or McManus Galleries in Dundee. So they hold a lot of the, the objects from the excavations at Kirpu. Um, we've got some really nice pieces of roof tile. One's got an animal footprint in it, um, mm. probably from a dog. So the Romans had, so in, in Scotland, we tended to keep our grain underground. The Romans had raised grain stores and they, apparently they always had little dogs that ran around and ratted. Then ratted. Yeah. yeah. Terriers. Um, so it's probably one of their footprints. And the other one has a, a stamp of the one of the legions that were based in so uh, the, It just kind of goes to show that, you know, dogs and also cats and mammals of that type have been sticking their paws into things that they shouldn't be <laughs> for many centuries. Yeah, my one of my, the base of one of my sheds has a cat footprint in it. Because the cat just couldn't stay off the wet concrete. No. I'm surprised it doesn't have your initials in it as well. No, I know I was very good. I stayed away from it. But yeah. Or yeah. a little iron footprint or Yeah. <laughs> so although we've so one of the sad piece of news that I have to bring is that we actually close on the first of October and that's us until the spring. Um we're hoping that we'll be open again like we were this year for Easter weekend. And we'll make a bit more of our, our new Roman exhibit uh, on, on Easter weekend. And we're hoping to have some kids activities and one or two other, just make a special event of, um, of Easter weekend, which will be fantastic. And the ambassador may make an appearance. Our ambassador might make a personal appearance. What we do. should do, actually, is try to replicate mm -hmm. one of the roof tiles with our ambassador. That would be awesome. Uh -huh. That would be because so, it, it would be okay, a though. dog similar size actually. Mm -hmm. So oh. as long as he doesn't try to eat it. No, but we can put his paw in it and then wash his paw and it'll all be fine. Yeah. That'll be wonderful. Yeah. So. Oh, that's the other thing. Um, actually, they should probably have arrived by now. We will over the winter period yes. have some calendars for sale. Mm -hmm. We did a bit of a thing on social media over the summer to get people to share their best images of our hashtag very famous tower. Very famous tower. Very famous tower. The most famous tower. Um, people on Twitter keep coming back and saying, ah, oh, there's one in Brecon. And we're like, well, yeah, but you can't go up it. <laughs> so we have pulled together a calendar. Um, unfortunately, we haven't received them in time to have them on sale this weekend, but we will be selling them over the winter um, mm -hmm. online and also if anyone is in the vicinity, there's a Christmas shopping evening in late November, I think. Mm -hmm. One of the local businesses hosts it every yeah. year. Um, so we're going to have a table there. So you'll be able to get your calendars and any other essential museum merchandise that you can't live without. Which is all of it. Come and buy stuff. Please, all of it. Buy the so lot. If you would like one of our calendars and can't make it here in person, if you email our podcast email address, which is Abernethy Archives, all one word, at outlook.com, and let us know that you want a calendar. We will sort that out for you. We will indeed. So that's going to be good. The calendar is going to be fabulous. It really is. So I believe, Anna, that you were rummaging around in the archives in Perth yesterday again. I was. Continuing on your. Um, Poo journey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's our poo lady. 
We'll start the next podcast, Adventures in Effluent. <laughs> oh, wow. That would have been such a good name for it. That's, oh, that's a fantastic... Anna should do her own podcast. You know, I'm writing it's that called down. Adventures in Effluent. I'm writing that down because... Um, and I am actually writing it down, as these two will attest. Yes, she's writing it. There is a pen moving. <laughs> so when I did the talk last year mm-hmm. on phase one of a proper sewage and drainage supply in the village, I did promise that at some point it would get updated. Um, it's not going to be in the next few months, folks. But that's quite a good title mm. for, for part two. Just um, no, yesterday's intriguing moment was the 1905 Town Council Minutes. Um, it's a fascinating resource, honestly. It's mm. just amazing. So one of the local farmers at Cordon mm-hmm. had begged the indulgence of the council to have a water supply from the town's main um, and wanted to know how much it would cost, blah, blah, blah. And the council had much deliberation because it's for a farm, it's not a domestic supply. Um, long bone story short, they decided they would need to get a bit of land to construct a storage pond. Fair enough. And they'd gone back to the farmer and said, well, would you give us the land? And he was like, no. No, I don't think I would. Um, I think he wanted too much money for it. Um, So then they contacted, not the tenant, but the owner of one of the other farms. um, And it's listed in the minute as Gataway Farm, which the local kind of knows roughly where that is. It's Mm -hmm. up the hill. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm. It's on the hill on the east side of the village. Yes, I'm very bad at compass directions. There's up, down, left and right in my universe. (laughs) why I get lost all the time um, and according to the town council they thought they would ask the owner of Gataway, the proprietor as he's listed in the minute if they could lease the field slightly to the west of the field they wanted to lease from Cordon and I'm thinking that can't be right that would no. put the field in the middle of the road because Cordon Farm is actually on the north of the village between the village and the Tay yes mm-hmm. um, so having hurriedly messaged Irene and said this does not make sense um, they talked about, apparently there's some sort of landmark called the taping stain or tapping stain. There's only one P in it, I would pronounce that taping, mm. but it could be tapping. Um, and Irene suggested the first edition ordinance survey map. So that made things a wee bit clearer insofar as it's not Gataway Gataway, it's Netherton of Gataway, mm. which is on the Cordon side of the road. But there's one or two like little coloured in squares on it that are really tiny mm-hmm. but it doesn't say what they are yeah. so we're no further forward as to where the stain might be there's there's a colourised version somewhere I think mm-hmm. it might be on the I, potentially on the NLS map mm-hmm. site there's a colourised version of the first edition OS map and that tends to highlight things a bit better because it was NLS I was on. Mm. Um, there will be colourised versions. And it, it kind of means that if there has been a storage pond built, it'll be blue. Mm. Well, I've not so got far enough along a bit more to, to find out if the pond did get built. Um, when I finished up in the archive yesterday, they'd come to the decision, which is beloved of town councils everywhere throughout the whole history of time, mm. to let it lie over to a further meeting yeah. <laughs> to make more investigations. <laughs> Um, so I think the I think they were planning to lease the land from Gataway, but they would have to. They Gataway had said you can have it for a twenty five year lease, mm-hmm. and they said, well, that's not long enough 
because we'll have to spend a lot of money building a wall and mm. fence and all the paraphernalia and pipes and all that. So when I left it last night, when I was leaving the archive, it was it was deferred for future discussion. Right. So they seem to have had a lot of special meetings. Yeah, you know, but they... I think, you know, getting the water supply and the proper sewage supply was really important. I mean, this, bear in mind, this is a good 20 odd years before the proper, mm. you know, this this was 1905 is what, 14 years after the 1905, which is when they built the storage tank at the top of Kirkwind. Right. And at some point around, I think it was 1900, 1901, mm. is when they covered over the Nethy Burn. Okay. Which probably explains why it keeps why flooding these days. Because they yeah. decided it would make the village look so much nicer if yeah. there was a road over the top of it. People wonder why we study the past, but then when you realise the knock-on effects mm -hmm. that yeah. some of this can have now, then yeah. actually it's all still really relevant. But Absolutely. even in living history, and in today you see, oh, a developer wants to put houses on such and such bit of land. And anyone who's lived in the vicinity for 50, 60 years will say, yeah. that's not a good bit. That always floods when the, the bar you know yeah. what I mean? There's there's that local knowledge that's kind of just through living and yes. seeing it. But yes. I, I agree yeah. with you on the town council stuff because it's part of, you know, although my background's journalism, not history you do still have to go back and look through some of this to see how yeah. today's council structures are mm -hmm. based. Yeah. And some of it is so diligently recorded. Um, and one of the things that I did, I, I got a bee in my bonnet about common good funds. Yeah, I still wonder about some of that. I and think, yeah. basically... As a journalist, I was doing a story about property that was once a town council property, mm -hmm. which was then put into Perth and Kinross District Council, now Perth and Kinross Council. And Perth and Kinross Council was selling the property. Mm -hmm. And then I looked it up, and in the law, which changed the town council to the, the district council, it said anything, any money made off of former town council assets should go back into the town and if the town has a common good fund it should go into the common good yeah. fund and if it doesn't it should at least be spent on that town mm -hmm. and it wasn't mm. and so i'm like hang on so i spent months researching this story and trying to get my head straight on it and all the and i was in the ak bell library in perth looking at the last minutes of the last town council yeah. meetings and yeah. most of them had their assets listed they had to do an audit of everything mm. and it was down to the tables and chairs that they used yeah. to sit on to have their right. council meetings or buildings you know something like the Eaton Hall in Ochterarda or something like that and then this was it on the last day of town councils and it was transferred to Perth and Kinross District Council so it's interesting to see how the minutia was recorded mm. In everything all the way up until 1977 when it transferred. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the minutes now on Perth and Kinross Council's website, you do get minutes, but it doesn't seem to be quite it's so no. No. into the finer details. No, I, I, I think a lot of the skill has been lost because a lot of minuting now, I know from my day job, 
we don't really have shorthand typists anymore. So a lot of minuting now with a lot of meetings, oh, it's, much it's exceptions learning. or it's action points. It's not a verbatim no. minute of the discussion. Yeah. What, what fascinates me about the Abernethy one is a couple of times yesterday I came across, oh, we'll need to, to write a letter from the town council to the parish council. Um, they wanted them to contribute. There'd been repairs done to the quarry road. So I'm trying to figure out exactly which road that is. And the parish council had agreed that they would contribute to it and then hadn't contributed to it. But when you get a bit deeper into the elections of various councillors to various bodies, the parish council and the town council were the same, had the same people on them. <laughs> yeah. So they're effectively writing to themselves. Yes. So, and I appreciate that from a kind of official, probably legal, administrative yeah. point of view, you have mm -hmm. to do that. But you think, well, do you know what? You, you've decided that the parish council have to make this very small contribution. Yeah. It's the same people. Could could you not just at least do you can that? say though that they did they did go into it with yeah. their right hat on. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah, and but it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. and uh, this is almost a problem that still exists. You get these organisations within a small community, and it tends to be the same people who actually do things. Yeah. So you end up with the same people in charge of this group, in charge of that group, and you sometimes lose the separation yeah and that actually constrains the channels of communication yeah because you've just got a few people who think they know everything or know everything about everything and most people actually don't know what's happening yeah, yeah. you know there's so much presumption goes on yeah. and it almost excludes other people from from coming in and being yeah. being part of the organization well, i like to prescribe to like the stanley you know, of Marvel comic fame, once <laughs> always said every comic book is someone's first comic book. Uh -huh. Every community council meeting is someone's first community council yeah. meeting. Every, you know, board meeting. And therefore, it has to be something that people can... It can. It has to be accessible. Yes. It can't just be insular. Mm -hmm. And that then encourages people, other people to come in and yeah. obviously it goes yeah. back to getting volunteers for things. Yes. Yeah. As people have to feel that they're not interfering in a clique or or, yeah. or the outsider, they have mm -hmm. to feel welcomed yeah. yes. and and able to just jump in and get going it, with it. it. It does fascinate me that you know every two or three years when there was obviously a, a prescribed term mm. that people would serve for, and then they had to step back and be re-elected, and they they go to all these preparations and advertise that they're going to have an election and they appoint a returning officer who is very often one of the people being re-elected <laughs> and then the same people just get elected yeah. back in and it, it, you do think about that and you think well how, how did people that could have made a really good contribution to this yeah. how did they get involved there must have been chats going on behind the scenes going so and so's retiring you should stand yes yeah. and there still is to this day oh god yeah i mean i've seen community councils you know tapping up people that they would like to come and join the mm -hmm. community council yeah. before anything's actually done and maybe th there's an element of you want to ensure that the right people are yeah. on the people who are actually going to do stuff and mm -hmm. not just sit there but there is also a will this person work well with the vibe yes. will they, will they not rock they, the boat yeah. too much and yeah. well, will they rock the boat do we need someone that's going to stand you know, up and go these kind of monolithic organisations and not even necessarily massively monolithic but even using something like this museum as an example mm -hmm. they need to succession plan yes mm -hmm. and if you end up with the same clique running it all the time 
you're going to come to a point where either they're burnt out. They age out. They age out. You know, so you, you need to always be bringing in, or the organisation just becomes completely or, stale. Yeah, or life changes. They move away. Yeah. They have kids. They, yeah. You know, they, they enter a new phase mm-hmm. of life that they cannot do that. And then, and again, that comes into not just succession planning, but diversity planning. Yes. Yeah. You, you couldn't just have young mums doing it because they have their responsibilities as young yeah. mums. You can't just have elderly people doing it. You can't just have men doing it. You can't just have farmers doing it no. because they all have their specific yeah. thing. And that's why having a little bit of every or as many yeah. parts of the community as you can will ensure that most of the time there's at least someone who's yeah. active. Yeah, yeah. You need, you need all... And, you know, community councils, mm-hmm. museums, whatever... You need, especially in a community museum, you need need different parts of the community to be represented. So, you know, folks, if you live in the community and you've got some spare time, they're always, always on the lookout. It's not as scary as you might think. It really isn't. Um, There's lots of different things that can be done. Drink coffee and eat biscuits quite regularly. Yeah, we do that quite a lot. You know, if you're motivated, we can can deal with that. You don't have to even speak to the public. No. You know, there's behind-the-scenes jobs that, that everyone can do. Some even you might even be you might be able to do from home. So I know. Without leaving the comfort of your sofa. Even if you're not local to this museum, look up your own local museum and they will be more than welcome mm. to have your help. Definitely. But we got away from archives there. Yes. yes. Sorry. Sorry. We di- we digressed quite substantially. That's what happens when you go delving into council minutes <laughs> but, but again, you learn from history. Mm. <laughs> you d- well, you should learn from history, is probably what I should yeah. say. But there's lots of examples where you don't learn from history. So your next step for the archive is to find out when it was deferred until and um, what the outcome yeah. was. Yes. So I'm, I'm just kind of working my way through, um, still with a view to once I've been through all the old minute books and things. I've ended up doing it a bit backwards. So I then need to go to the set before mm. so that I can start to build a timeline of right when did all this start and pull out all the water supply stuff and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of thing so um, yes yeah, I'm still trying to get my hands on a copy of the actual design plan for the waterworks from the 30s mm. I'm hoping they're you know we found the plan in the village in the secret box here yes. so I'm, I'm hoping at some point we might stumble upon a copy well I mean we Anna and I are have steadily been working through that box um, and there's lots of other stories that have been coming out, mm. but we haven't found any more about that one yet. Not to say it won't come. It won't come. It's when you you find people or you find bits of information yeah. when you're not looking for them. Exactly. When you're not looking In for the them. most random of places. Yeah, it's a lot. What I mean, one of the things that I've been doing this week is looking at um, old Kirk Session records. Mm. But I'm going back into the, the 1740s. So Anna mentioned earlier on, there's, you know, Abernethy has an, a long ecclesiastical history. Um, and some of it, we've had ministers who've been involved in quite big ructions and things in the Scottish Church. So in 1733, the first secession happened. Um, and a group of gentlemen who all lived quite locally um, broke off from the established church. And the minister in Abernethy was one of these guys. And he basically started his own congregation because he wasn't going to be part of the established church anymore. And they were finally deposed from the national church, from the from the established church, 
1740, but there was no new minister in Abernethy until 1747. Mm-hmm. But Mr. McCreef kept preaching around he- around Abernethy. They built a secession meeting house in 1743. But because Alexander McCreef had been the minister when um, at the divide, he'd actually kept all of the, the vestments. Oh, really? So the secession church had the established church. They had the font, they had the mark cloth, they had um, communion cups and all this kind of stuff. So they were basically starting from scratch. So, well... The established church church wanted it back. Um, And there was actually a... Was there a fight? Like a fisticuffs fight? Well, there wasn't a fisticuffs fight, no. They actually got some um, judge in Perth uh, and there were quite a... There was was a lot of expense involved, but they did get them back in in 1748, um, much to the disgruntledness. But one of the the church farms, so this was land that belonged to the established church called Kirklands, um, was actually still under the ownership of one of the members of the established congregation. Right. Of the, sorry, secessionist congregation. So in the the church minute the church session minutes in seventeen forty eight they're like we're we're chucking that guy off his farm because but he owned it. no he did oh no the secessionist he, owned the secessionist it. owned the so land so he was a member of the secessionist congregation but the established church owned the land ah okay so basically as a secessionist he was getting benefit from the Kirk mm. sessions mm-hmm. land so they chucked him off his farm so that they so took him back. Kirklands? Oh, I haven't worked that out yet. I do need to look at a map. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where Kirkland is, but that that's you know that's one of my next jobs. I'll yeah. put that on my list. I'd be interested to find out because there's there's one or two candidates for places, but yeah, I think Kirkland still exists. I just need to find it. But um, yeah, so that's what I've been very excited. It has all It has. There are always lots of new stories to find. So yes. probably every single time we do um, a podcast. You'll find another little bit out about the history of Abernethy as we discover it. Might be a bit poo, might be a bit farms. Just <laughs> might be a bit poo and farms. Might be a bit poo and farms. Well, poo and farms goes they quite well. They do kind of go together. They very much do. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening to our ramblings today. We'll be back in a month or so with some more ramblings. We're good at ramblings. We are. <laughs>